HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Root 11 Potato Chips. Made with a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. To learn more, visit rt11.com. So you don't shun the devil with your rock and roll load. Knows that country music's gonna save your soul. The Welcome back to the Speakeasy. I'm Souther Teague. And I'm Greg Benson. Greg, how are you, buddy? I'm doing all right, man. I'm, I'm hanging in there. How are you doing? I mean, it's a hot one here in New York City. And of course, uh, you know, in our virtual studios, that means that I'm sitting at home uh, in a makeshift fort made out of pillows and blankets uh, with my AC and my fan off because we don't want to have background noise on the show. So, you know. Uh, <laughs> it's hard, we, but we do it for you, listeners. We do yes, it for you. We suffer for our art, indeed. <laughs> Uh, you know, or our craft or whatever the hell this is we do. Um, but still just slogging along, uh, as far as all of the continued and updated regulations go on how I have to operate my businesses, uh, even though they're operating at a loss. Um, and you know, just trying to, frankly, currently at this point it's PR, uh, Greg, I'm just trying to make sure that my audience knows that I'm still here and I'm still fighting. Um, but it's, you know, it literally is a cost. Uh, we're running it running at minimum double the labor and, and about a quarter of the revenue um, to operate as safely as we can with limited outdoor seating. And now we have to offer food, which that ups the labor and also the cost of goods. Um, so, we, you know, just trying to trying to get to the other side of it uh, in as whole of a piece as I can and, and then hope that we can fight back from there. Uh, but frankly, with every passing day, you know, I'm hopeful but not confident we're going to make it. Yeah, absolutely, man. Well, it's I was I was having a conversation on Monday about um, a, a pretty important piece of legislation that's up uh, for vote. I, I believe this week in the House, uh, which we can get to a little bit with our guest. But one thing that we were talking about one one question that this person asked me is, um, what would you show? A legislator, like if you were kind of taking them through on this a Christmas Carol Dickensian tour of New York City, what would you show someone who had a critical deciding vote on this this aid package for restaurants to convince them? And I would say I would stand in front of uh, a busy bar in the East Village, pick one. There are dozens, if not hundreds, of them, and I would say, you know, I would stand in front of the tables that they've put up in front of in the parking spaces in front of their establishment. And I would pull up Instagram of just a random Friday or Saturday night from last year where it's just asses to elbows in that bar. And I would show them my phone and say, this is what they need. And then I would point to the three tables that they're allowed to have at a safe distance and say, this is what they have. Yeah. Like it's not even close to enough and and it's providing a weird sense of normalcy that I, I i'm i'm getting wearier and wearier of by the day yeah and you know i've got many uh i, I totally agree of course uh, we we're operating at, at far far less than you know even quarter capacity frankly um and i've got many of my staunch regulars and and longtime fans who've reached out to me through various ways you know instagram and uh, social media and, and through direct texts and emails from some of them who know me closely um, saying things like, you know, love you, want to support you, but I'm not coming out until this gets better. So, you know, right now 
We also, though we have seats, they're not always full. And, and the reason that they're not full is because many people are still uh, not confident in going out, you know, which means that even when we get to open back up inside, we're going to have consumer lack of confidence to be back in that, as you said, sort of elbow to asshole situation. No one's going to want to be that close to one another after now four, six, maybe even eight months of being told remain six feet away from every other human being. So, you know, I think that what we're in right now is the long march uh, up to the big fight. So we're, we're being worn out by this, you know, beleaguered march where we're having to carry burdens and weights the whole way. And then when we get in the ring for the fight, which is reopening, we're all going to be exhausted. And who knows if we're going to make it. I've mentioned before on the air that the National Restaurant Association, the good NRA, uh, predicts, <laughs> yeah, they're predicting that 85% of all sole proprietorships will close by January. 85, eight and a half out of 10 sole proprietorships. And I'd be a fool if I thought myself impervious to that sort of statistic. Um, so, you know, I'm, again, hopeful but not confident has been my mantra throughout this whole thing that we'll make it through. And, you know, I don't know that we will, uh, but I, I hope we do. Same, man. I, I mean, that's that's kind of all you can do is be is be uh, cautiously optimistic or like or, or well, not cautiously optimistic, um, hopefully <laughs> pessimistic, I guess, whatever the opposite <laughs> of that is. There we go. I think that's more me. The cautious optimism comes from from Damon, who couldn't be here today, sadly. Um but, uh, yeah, he's the yin to my yang on the show, usually. Um, so, you know, I hope I don't take us down too many dark roads. You'll have to, you'll have to keep shining the light on me. Don't worry. I'll be, I'll be the sunshine golden boy today. I think I can step into those shoes. Maybe not the hat, but, but possibly the boots. Uh, so, once again, operating from our COVID-friendly uh, um, you know, remote studios in our own homes and, and what have you. Uh, Greg, who we got in the fake studio today? Uh, well, today in our lovely and sweltering fake studio, we have Maxwell Britton. He's the managing partner at the Django and Roxy Hotel, and he is the state organizer for New York for Thirst, which is a really interesting and uh, necessary organization that we're going to be talking about a lot today. Uh, Maxwell, thanks so much for joining us, man. Hey, what's up, guys? How's it going? Uh, you know, uh, life is uh, surreal uh, and, and and you know uncomfortable uh but we're healthy so i think uh we can you know we'll keep going yeah great yeah, i'm gonna i'm gonna every, be every, i'm gonna be sunshine a good day right exactly yeah um maxwell you and i've known each other for quite some time you know uh you were over at uh, uh maison premiere which uh was just a few blocks away from rye when i was over there this was uh at this point over a decade ago uh and we became friends way back then so i'm super yep. happy to have you on the show again you've been on the show before right um, yeah, a couple times. yeah, uh, and uh, and you reached out to me earlier this week because you're you're involved in this new thing, um, and I, I'll admit that my head is spinning with so many other things that I'm going to need you to explain it to me again, which is fine because we're going to do it in front of a, an audience. So um, let's just jump right into it. You know what 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 is thirst and and what are you guys trying to accomplish? Um, yeah, it's a lot. So there's a lot to unpack there, and yeah. um, I'll try to do it in the most comprehensive way I can, but please, please stop me at any time to ask me questions. Um, but uh, Thirst is a uh, 501c6 organization, which defines us as a not-for-profit lobby group. So we are entirely volunteer-based, and we are not doing this for money. We, were do we are doing this to support um, our industry and small businesses across the country. So what is it that we're doing um, for those people and for these people, for these industries? Uh, well, we have a huge problem in our country with uh, how insurance policies work for small businesses. So usually for most small businesses, people will have um, some kind of business interruption policy. So one big reason why you would have insurance is because you, you if there were a fire or a flood or there was some kind of something that caused you to have to stop making revenue for a certain period of time. Sure. Maybe a pandemic. Yeah. So maybe, a pan <laughs> maybe, 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 maybe a pandemic could be a part of that. So what's interesting though, is uh, it gets like, it's the policies kind of vary from state to state, but more or less they're kind of all the same. And the bills um, that we have, that we have in legislation for these, for these policies, um, are pretty ambiguously interpreted. So uh, yes, with the pandemic situation, most of these policies will have a clause that's either 
a no pandemic clause or a no virus clause. So basically what they're trying to say is that if a pandemic were to occur, that a pandemic um, would not trigger the business interruption insurance claim. However, um, there's a couple other kinds of ways that a business interruption uh, claim should be triggered. So as I mentioned before, you have your, you could have a flood, you could have a fire. There's also um, something called civil action or civil commotion. So civil action could be something like when a government body mandates your private business into closure, which is what we have going on right now. So the way that we're the way that we're we're looking at this in terms of the way that we're trying to change legislation on a state and on a national level is that we're we're not focused on the pandemic. You know, obviously that's occurring, but it's the res- the result of the pandemic has created civil action which is the the closures that we're experiencing or, you know, the partial operations that, you know, some bars are attempting to try to do. But, you know, like I know, Souther, you were talking about some of your, you know, experiences right now with like operating at a loss. Um, so those are, that, those, you're taking a financial damages because of the civil action that's occurring during this time. So it's not just because, it's not just for those businesses that are shut down and losing money. It's for, all businesses that have been affected by the uh, go- government policies that have been given to us um, by our by our uh, policymakers. Absolutely, yeah, and 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 I'm not a lawyer, and unless Souther's been holding out on me, I don't think he is either. Um, but uh, I wanted to ask a quick question about that pandemic clause that you mentioned. It, it sort of seems to me that what was intended by that was like you know a business can't say oh it was a rough flu season and wouldn't you know it business was really slow in february pay me you know it seems like it wasn't designed for the unprecedented scale that we're experiencing now yeah for sure yeah that's 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 absolutely correct and uh i I believe it it, that they actually put that 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 clause into effect whenever that whenever we had the sars pandemic which I can't remember what, I think it was maybe 2003, Mm -hmm. um, sometime around there. So yeah, that's kind of like when, when that occurred, but, um, yeah. So I think what, you know, what, what a lot of them are trying to say is basically, you know, well, this is a pandemic, so, you know, we're pretty much, we're not going to approve your claim. Um, and they can kind of get away with it because of the way that these bills are being interpreted because they're so ambiguous, they're kind of leaning very heavily on this clause. Um, and basically we're, we're really challenging that as our, as a lobby group by saying, well, this is not, we're not talking about a pandemic. We're talking about civil action. We're talking about civil commotion. We're talking about businesses that are losing their money because of, of government mandates that we're required to follow. Um, so that's, that's kind of, that's, that gives you sort of an overview of, of who we are as a group and, uh, a little bit of what we do, but in terms of our action and in terms of our initiatives and strategy, um, there's quite a lot to be said about those things. And who who started all this? Who started Thirst? So uh, Nate Whitehouse, who's um, a co-founder and partner of Drifter Spirits, um, and also um, co-founder of Avua Kashasa. Um, he's uh, an attorney by trade, but everybody uh, knows him in our industry pretty well for um, for those brands that uh, he's a part of, and. Uh, Basically, just started out as him. I believe I think he was just sort of advising people uh, that were asking questions about you know some of these issues in April, and uh, then he started putting together a town hall uh, where just p- different leaders from our industry could get on the phone and and ask questions, and we were all just kind of brainstorming what what sorts of things we could do to try to support our, our industry during this time, and uh, then we started seeing, you know, some of these, not, I wouldn't call them loopholes, but just sort of actually like really just holes that we have in these bills that are in place uh, that really support these insurance policies. And uh, we started looking at like how much money is there in the national reserve for that these, that these uh, insurance companies collectively hold. And uh, we've discovered that they have around $847 billion in national reserves collectively. And uh, we've been able to we've been able to estimate that if we could even get 
every claim partially filled for every single business across the country, it would be around $380 billion. And that would be an actual lifeline um, for a lot of businesses um, that are suffering right now, because I think we all know, you know, the CARES Act and the PPP loans uh, was definitely a failed experiment for a lot of people. And I know a lot of businesses that have ended up having to shut their doors permanently because it was a worse, it was a worse deal for them to try to take the loan than it was for them to, uh, than it, than it was for them to shut down completely. So, you know, the way that the country, the way that our government is, is treating these issues right now is obviously with not, with not very much sympathy or care. And, um, and that's also seen through the way that, you know, they're allowing the insurance lobby to kind of get away with this. And then they're sitting on all this money. And it's just the other thing that I think is very interesting is, uh, I mean, there's a lot of different numbers flying around from the National Restaurant Association about how much money the hospitality industry contributes to the uh, national revenue yearly. And I've heard figures go between $780 billion and like a trillion dollars a year that we contribute to the, uh, the economy you know, combined with all of our businesses and suppliers and adjacent, you know, industries that are part of what we do. Um, and I've also seen some figures for the insurance industry where they're also bringing in somewhere around a trillion dollars a year annually as well. And so it's just very interesting to me that, uh, you know, we've got two industries that contribute an equal amount to our, you know, to our economic health. And uh, somehow we're still being swept under the rug. And, uh, you know, we can make that comparison for a lot of other industries as well, because we've seen bailouts for, for banks and we've seen bailouts for, um, you know, the travel industry and we're, we're seeing it in all these places. And it's just, it's, it's just so unbelievable how much money we're bringing to the table and we still don't have a seat at the table. Right. So that's what, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to change that right now. Yeah, it seems a pretty simple solution that these two uh, industries would, you know, uh, prop each other up during this time when when they're de- delivering, you know, a similar amount of uh, revenue to the economy. You know, uh, that number that you that you just said that the insurance um, industry takes in, they take it in from us, right? If we if we don't yeah. survive, then we're not paying our insurance bill, and then they're not, you know, making money. So it seems like yeah. bailing bailing us out would be bailing themselves out. And as far as the federal government goes. Well, they've obviously, you know, shown their 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 cards, and they don't give a uh, they don't give a crap about the restaurant and bar industry. They bailed out the airlines, which, uh, you know, restaurant and bars um, employ literally fifteen times more people and contribute around the same amount of times more to the economy than airlines mm-hmm. do. Yet, yet we bailed them out um, instead of ourselves, and it's already been shown that that many of them are taking those bailout dollars and just buying back their own stocks, which. Gives a you know a, a sugar high to the uh, um, to the stock market, uh, and you know makes them look good and, and, and takes care of their investors and their stockholders. So, you know, this is a bunch of tough shit to chew on, especially for guys like us who are, you know, at our at our core, we're just hospitality guys. We just want to fucking show people a good time and and do it yeah. in an in- interesting way, right? So, what made you Maxwell take the initiative um, to 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 move into this kind of space? From, from the space that I just described, just one of hospitality and, you know, kind of a good time li- lifestyle. Yeah, I know. It's uh, no one ever, no one would ever think this would, I wouldn't have thought this would, was what I would be doing at this point in my career. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I've been in hospitality like you guys for a really, really long time, pretty much most of my life. Um, and I've been a small business owner now for five years. Um, and when, I mean, and before that too, I mean, everybody, like anybody that works in the hospitality industry has multiple skill sets that you develop, you know, while you're in the trade and yeah, we're, we're best known for making great cocktails and showing people a great time. Uh, but behind all that, especially the further you go up, uh, in the business, um, especially once you become a business owner, you find out that there are all kinds of different things that you need to know that have nothing to do with drinks. Uh, you need to you need to have a pretty good understanding of how um, how finance how finance works. You need to have a good understanding of marketing. You have to know uh, you have to know a lot of legal stuff. There's all kinds of different sorts of 
um, legal legal things that we have to have to know and pursue as business owners. Obviously, yep. we're talking about the insurance thing right now, and so I guess you know, long long story short. I've just was able to acquire quite a lot of different skill sets over this period of time. And I found that the culmination of all those things, especially certain aspects of like this, like the social aspects of what we do are actually quite transferable skills for like lobbying and uh, activism uh, because it involves, it involves a lot of, uh, a lot of communication. It, it involves a lot of uh, organization it requires a lot of public speaking um, and, and networking and all kinds of different things that we've all done before that you just don't think about how you would do that, you know, in a political sort of way. I mean, it's not something that we're, we're all known for doing. Uh, we tend to try to ask, you know, we tend to try to leave those things at the door. You know, we usually don't let those kinds of things inside of the restaurants and bars because we're supposed to you know, sort of create a fantasy, suspend a reality where, where people can kind of forget, you know, the world that's outside of the front door. Um, but, you know, now that like we're kind of being forced to be, to, to confront these issues, I'm like, well, I have to do something. I mean, this has been my career for my entire life. And uh, I've just been watching it basically fall apart within the yeah. past four months. And I mean, I'm just not going to let it, I'm not going to sit around and watch it go down without putting up a fight. You know, it's just like, I just can't do that. It's, it's who I am, you know, it's, and I think most importantly, who we are as, as hospitality professionals is we're community leaders and we create community centers for people. And that to me is really what we do. And that is precisely what I'm doing now with Thirst. Yeah. And you're somewhat uniquely positioned uh, in, in both a good and bad way, right? Django is inside the hotel, so you can't even do uh, the limited outdoor seating. So you've been kind of without, uh, you know, a sort of a drift, right? Without a, without a place to go or a purpose on a daily basis. So this yeah. is pretty pretty timely for you that you have this time on your hands and yeah. this, this skill set that you've acquired over time that have, that have stacked up to be this potential lobbyist. Yeah, um, exactly. I mean, that, that is that is definitely my situation. And um, and that's every single person that we know is undergoing a, a very different and a very unique circumstance because we all have different kinds of business agreements and uh, leases. And, you know, some of us have great landlords and some of us have piece of shit landlords. So it's just kind <laughs> of like, you know, it's just sort of all over the place for, for a lot of us. And so my my particular situation is is pretty unique compared to some of our other friends in the fact that my business is inside of a hotel. Um, we don't. We're also in a like the seller level of the property, so you have to enter the building to go inside it. Uh, we don't we don't rent any outdoor space, so we can't apply for sidewalk uh, permits or anything like that. Uh, and the whole to go cocktail thing, especially now, uh, really doesn't make any sense for us. So. We're basically forced to remain closed until whenever we can go back inside. But then in addition to that, the other thing that puts me in a very vulnerable position is that because I'm a part of a hotel, um, that's an entirely different industry that is getting hit as hard as we're getting hit right now. And now that we have uh, all these domestic and international travel restrictions due to the way that our, uh, our government has managed this pandemic, um, nobody's traveling. And, <laughs> Mismanaged. And <that's>, right. <laughs> so, and so nobody's traveling right now. And so in addition to all these other things that are making it impossible for me to open, even if I wanted to, there's people aren't, aren't going to New York city. They're not staying at hotels. There's Broadway is closed. And, you know, like we just barely had our zoos open up. There's still most of the indoor museums are, are still closed. And, you know, a lot of, and we can't go inside of our restaurants. So it's just sort of like all these, even if we did have these travel restrictions, why would you want to come to New York city? Half the things that make it what it is, the arts and the culture and the restaurants and bars and theater, all these things aren't here right now. So why would somebody come? Right. We're not a very attractive attraction anymore. Um, right. And, and who knows how long that's going to last. And I think that maybe uh, for our listeners who aren't in, in New York or even, uh, you know, larger market cities, you know, it's it's hard to even think about this, but it's true. Even your most sort of basic local corner bar in New York um, still relies on tourism. 
Um, you know, uh, every time your friend comes to visit, you take them to your local. Um, so, you know, uh, bars that are inside of a hotel like yours or bars that like mine that have had some uh, fortunate uh, acclaim nationally and internationally, like people come to visit these bars. And if no one's coming to visit, then the bar is, is you know, losing revenue there as well. Uh, and as you mentioned, consumer confidence is going to be super low when we can get back to letting people in. They're not going to want to be in these tight spaces. Yeah, um, yeah. Let's totally. take uh, let's take a quick break, Maxwell, and hear from our sponsors here at uh, Heritage Radio Network. Uh, we're going to come back and keep talking to you about thirst uh, and maybe a little bit about White Claw. Uh, stay tuned, everybody. This episode is brought to you by Route Eleven Potato Chips. From the moment Route 11 dropped their first batch of chips back in the early days of 1992, they understood their destiny as a high-quality producer. Instead of succumbing to the frenzy of mass production, they took advantage of their small size and made chipping a personal art form. The payoff was immediate, an incredible potato chip. With a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. In this world of uncertainty that we live in, Route 11 potato chips believe comfort food can be just that. Know where your food comes from. To learn more, visit rt11.com. And we're back. You were listening to The Speakeasy on Heritage Radio Network. Today we are joined in our virtual studio by Maxwell Britton of Thirst, which is an organization that's doing some really important stuff to try and, you know, the, the analogy that we use a lot on this show about saving the restaurant industry is bailing out the Titanic with a shot glass. You actually have a, a bucket and maybe yeah. even potentially uh, some, some like a wet vac or some pumps that you could use. Talk to us about um, some actual tangible stuff that, that, that is, uh, you're working on right now that is very uh, pressing and what potentially the listener could do to support these actions if they're, if, you know, they're so moved. Great. Awesome. Well, first of all, guys, I, I really, really want to thank you guys uh, for the for the platform. Um, and uh, it's this kind of advocacy uh, that our organization really needs right now uh, is having advocates like you guys allowing us to speak about these issues and um, you know, sh- communicate. This is all to me. This is just really all about distributing and communicating as much as we can about these issues. Uh, but the way that we operate is uh, we're. I like to think of us, even though we are a lobby group, I like to think of us more of a small business resource. Um, there's a lot of businesses out there that they do have they do have uh, insurance, they have all these things, but they might not even understand their policy. They might not even understand how to file a claim. Um, so in the short term, that's something that we were trying to do is just to help people file their claims. Because uh, that's going to be a really important process for us when it comes down to um, changing up this legislation for the way that the bills for um, these policies are defined. Um, so the big part of doing this is working on a local level. So we are a national organization, but we're really, really local. That's the way that we're, we're scaling out our, uh, our strategy. So every state in the country has a insurance policy group um, that's made up of state senators and assembly members. Those state senators and, and assembly members, they belong to different different districts um, throughout their state. And uh, so those those districts are, you know, zones um, all over the place. And so what we what we do is we actually have a, a, a team of law students have pretty much uh, drafted up all of those districts for all of the states that we're working within. Um, so once we've identified all the territories that one of these uh, legislators are a part of, what we do is we'll go into that district. And we identify somebody who is a business leader or a business owner within that district. And uh, we appoint them as a community organizer. What their role is, is to uh, basically canvas all of the business, all the businesses that are within their district, ask them to sign uh, our petition, which is on our website. And our website is www.thirstgroup.org. And there's just a sign up right there. It takes 45 seconds. And really, all we need is somebody to... Um, provide us with their contact information, their location, address, et cetera. 
And then they'll also provide just like a brief testimony of what kind of economic hardship they might be experiencing um, due to uh, the shutdowns that we're all experiencing right now. Um, and so from there, once we've got a minimum, we've, we're kind of, we're aiming for anywhere between 50 to a hundred, uh, signatures from business owners within a given district. Um, once we've acquired that quota, we actually are in contact with the offices of the legislator of that territory. And, uh, we sit down with them. Uh, it, it would be our, one of our lawyers. We have, uh, we also have an insurance consultant that's a part of our steering committee. And then the community organizer from that district as well will sit at the table with the with that with the policymaker. And what we, what we do is we um, provide them uh, details on the kinds of problems that that this issue is creating. And then we also present a few different solutions that we could pursue um, as a sort of like as a compromise. Uh, and uh, if they're still not supportive at that point, then we also have their, the community organizer at the table, uh, who's really kind of a spokesperson for all the small businesses of that given district and they can basically say listen you know I'm, I'm here representing on behalf of 100 small businesses who happen to be your constituents and uh they all really need you to advocate for us in in albany when it comes time to vote on amending the way that this bill is interpreted and uh if you don't feel like doing that then once again i've got 100 small business owners here that will be happy to let their community know not to vote for you at the next election so we're definitely pressuring these policymakers pretty harshly uh, because one of their primary responsibilities is to take care of like the economic health of their districts. Um, so they're actually kind of required to to listen and, and and hopefully also advocate. I mean, it sounds like a little bit of strong arming, but that's exactly what lobby lobbying is, right? Yes, it's using yeah. it's using yeah. it's using your network and your and your network being your net worth. Uh, you know, you're saying you got a hundred. Uh, uh, businesses that all have a community of their own. So we're talking if they each have a hundred customers, that's, you know, we're looking at thousands of people uh, pretty quickly that they could motivate to uh, vote in different people to make changes in the future if we can't make them now. I mean, I think this is, this all sounds uh, fucking brilliant. And I can't believe that you, you and your team uh, have come up with this so quickly. You know, we've been, we've been shut down since March and uh, I'm sure you didn't think of it on day one, right? You, but but you've motivated so quickly. Yeah, I mean, I, I do wish that we were a little bit further along um, because this pandemic, it definitely moves a lot faster than we are. Um, and, and you know that something changes every single day. And so there is, uh, yeah, I mean, we're, I think we're definitely pretty far along and, and we're also established right now in about, uh, I think we're at like 12 or 13 states right now. We have uh, state organizers set up and all of them are in different different places in terms of how they've, you know, how many signups and signatures they're getting. And so, you know, back to the, the, the whole call to action, you know, once again, is to sign up. But, you know, for everybody that's listening, regardless of whether or not you are a small business owner in any state and anywhere in this country, um, we still want, we still need your support and you can still sign up. We still want to know where you are and we still want to know that you, that you support, that you support this. Um, but we really do uh, need to create awareness for small business owners because we do need to help them. And we do have a long-term goal, but in the short term, we can still support these businesses by helping them uh, file their claims. And so uh, it's really important that we share that information with everybody. Absolutely. And this is, and, and the thing that I, you know, I've like everybody else been forced to think a lot more about lobbyists in the past four months than I really would have ever wanted to. Um, but one thing that it seems to me is that, you know, I mean, first of all, like we talked about earlier, restaurant and bar folks are excellent at putting on hats that they've never worn before and just running with it. You know, it's like when you get promoted to your first GM job, it's like, congratulations, you've made awesome cocktails your entire career. You're a plumber now. Like you, <laughs> yeah. you have, we, we're very adaptable. And I think also we're very good at talking to people and educating. And I think that, you know. There is definitely uh, an aspect of lobbying that's like uh, speak softly but carry a big stick. You know, it's like you can definitely use the strong arm if you want to. But it also seems like a lot of the mission is, at least from what you're doing, is is education, is going to these um, these local politicians and saying, I don't know if you're aware of this, but what is happening isn't working and it isn't working badly. And here's what we can do to fix it. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I mean, obviously like strong arming people into doing something isn't necessarily what I want to do. 
Um, but you know, I'm also doing a lot of things that I wouldn't want to do right now, but I have to, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not too polite that I, that I wouldn't have to, that I would not utilize that strategy to protect our industry and to protect my colleagues and my communities and all that sort of things. If that's what it comes down to, then that's what we have to do. Exactly. If it's the right thing, fuck it. Strong arm. Yeah, exactly. And I have no problem. I have no problem guilt guilting somebody into into supporting i mean and at, at the end of the day i mean i don't <laughs> this is gonna make it sound, sound like i'm guilting everybody who's listening into doing this but uh at the end of the day if you listen to the show if you go to a cocktail bar if you work in a bar if you work in a restaurant if you work at a, at a food blog or you know any other kind of industry adjacent type of business then we all have a moral responsibility to support this issue you know it's just it's like we're talking about it, the like endangering our industry and all it takes is 45 seconds to hop onto our website and just fill out this information. If people yeah. want to do more than that, then they can also contact me and, and we have like lots and lots of different kinds of roles and help that we need right now. Right. I mean, I, I don't feel like you're guilting people into it. You're, you're just, you're really calling people to an important, um, you know, action the, that seemingly is pretty simple to undertake uh, say the website again, Thirst. It's a www.thirstorg. I'm sorry, thirstgroup.org. Thirstgroup.org. Cool. We'll make sure that's in the show notes as well. Um, and I, I can hear the passion in your voice, and I understand it because I've known you for a long time. But maybe talk a little bit about what you think is so important about, uh, you know, bars and, and restaurants in our society and community in general. I mean, we just, we, we risk losing so much. I mean, if you, I mean, we can, you know, take out, you know, the economic aspects of the equation, you know, all of the jobs that it represents and, you know, like the supply chain that, you know, most people don't even think about or know about, you know, like the farm that, that, you know, our, our, our fruit came from and the, the, the winery that we bought our wine from, fruit, you know, so on and so on and so forth, the paper that we buy, the, the, the linens that we get for the for the tablecloths like there's all kinds of different like business to business uh business to businesses that are a part of a part of what we do and so obviously you know there's that economic issue the economic issue where you know all of these other businesses are endangered in addition to ours um, but what we're also losing is community and we're losing arts and culture and we're also uh missing a very very important aspect of human life which is, you know, the experiential and the social that, uh, you know, we all really need to survive. And um, that's what bars have always been for people. They've been those back, they've been that backdrop um, for those very important human life uh, experiences that we all need. Um, and they're community centers. And so we're, we're, we're risking losing community centers. We're, we're risking uh, some basic human experiences there's just there's so many different ways that that bars really really contribute to um, to society and uh, and I think and it's really unusual because I don't think anybody would ever ever would have um, thought that this was going to happen and so it's just it's very uh, I don't know how to say this like kind of jarring to begin to try to explain why this is such an important thing that we need to try to protect. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've had conversations, not just with bar people, with everybody where they've said, oh my God, I can't wait until I can go back to a bar or a restaurant and just hang out again. But I can tell you exactly how many people have said, oh God, I can't wait to fly on an airplane again. It's zero. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, right. Totally. And, and we bailed them out and not us, right? So it seems like our priorities are way out of whack, uh, but we knew that going into this. Uh, with the current administration, especially, uh, I don't, I don't want to turn this into a political show, um, <laughs> but you know, we're all feeling the pinch, and we all know that it's coming from above. And and again, I, I think I said it earlier, the the government has shown their cards, and and they kind of don't give a shit about us. And uh, so yeah. now we have to advocate for ourselves. And yeah. so you know, very happy to have you on, so we can amplify your voice, and very happy to have you out there doing this this work. Um, uh, when did thirst kind of crack open? When did you guys get this? Like, when did it go from idea to action? Um, so yeah, I think we, we basically formed we formed our steering committee in April, mid April, 
and then actually we, j- we just recently um, filed our 501c6, um, which is what makes us a, a non-for-profit lobby group. That's also really important for me to say, we're all volunteer based. Nobody is making money off of this. Everybody's donating their time. Uh, also, if I had to estimate how much of our billable hours we've all put into this so far, because uh, there's about like 50 people a part of our organization, like we're definitely talking hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of billable hours that we've put into this already. Right. I'm sure. Yeah. It's not, it's not, lobbying is not easy. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we started up in, yeah, we started up in, in April and uh, then we just sort of began to scale things out. I think that uh, I, I first started really pounding the pavement once I kind of understood how to do what we're doing uh, probably about like, six or seven weeks ago. Sure. I mean, yeah, it's another learn as you go situation. Uh, I think that's another, that's another attribute that's built into us or at least trained into us over our careers in this field. You, uh, either you come into it, uh, learning as you go, or you, you adapt to learning as you go. As you said, uh, Greg, uh, I'm a plumber. Fuck. I I know more about plumbing today (laughs) than I did, than I did when I, but when I started in my career, uh, and you know, it's just part and parcel that we have to kind of learn on our feet and go. Uh, in the notes that we uh, shared prior to the show going on air, um, you posed a question that you might want to touch on, and I'd like to touch on it with you too. And I don't know if you meant this directly uh, correlating to the pandemic or, or if you just meant this in general, but you said, what, what, do you, what do you think the future of the global cocktail community is? Uh, and why are cocktails important and are they important at all anymore? What do you feel about that, Maxwell? Yeah, I mean, well, the reason why I asked that question is, you know, because we're sort of like, this is getting super existential, you know, for all of us, because we have to think about, like, we're beginning to, to describe to ourselves what is really a bar. And we've sort of put on this facade um, as professionals, we all have, I have, um, over over the years of our career of being these, you know, beverage experts and cocktail experts. And, you know, we kind of have this certain air of notoriety about us because of, you know, our, our, our knowledge and experience um, in, in bars and beverage. Um, but when you peel all those layers back, you know, we're, we're just, like I said before, we're just creating a community center and creating like hospitable and hopefully safe environments um, for people to enjoy, you know, an alcohol, an alcoholic beverage. Um, and I think you said to me, Southern, when we were on the phone last week, you were like, I'm concerned that, you know, every bar is going to be the same. We're all kind of homogenized at this point because we're all just kind of trying to do the same thing to stay open, to get people to come, you know, where everybody's got a, a frozen margarita on their menu now and everybody's, you know, try, just kind to like do whatever they can to get business. So I all mean, these things that, I mean, that matter yeah, to my, us are out the window, you know? Yeah, I would jump in there real quickly and just say, yeah, Amoria Margo, famously, uh, you know, no sugar, no shaker, no juice. Currently, I'm serving, you know, uh, and no vodka at my bar. Currently, I'm serving vodka, hibiscus, lemonade, and a spicy jalapeno maple syrup margarita on my outdoor cafe. Nothing about this sounds right to me. Um, right. But I have to do it because it's difficult for me to expect that someone's going to sit outside literally in a parking space on the street in New York City in 97 degree weather and drink a Manhattan. Um, right. You know, I'm a fool if I think that's going to work. Um, mm-hmm. So I have to adapt. But then I look next door to the bar who's also on the sidewalk right next door to me and he's got a vodka lemonade and a spicy margarita. And I look across the street and they've got a vodka lemonade and a, you know, some kind of frozen margarita coming out of a frozen machine. You know, like we all suddenly the field has been uh, cut down to a place where we're all kind of doing the same things and competing for those same few mm-hmm. dollars that are out mm-hmm. there. So it's really going to yeah. change. It's really going to change the landscape for obviously for the beginning uh, of coming back to life, but who knows how long this will last. Yeah. Yeah. We've definitely been leveled out, you know, and it's just, you know, I think about, sometimes I think about like some of the conferences that we've attended and some of maybe even some of the lectures that you and I have probably done over the years, you know, and, you know, you're, we're doing our, our, classes on you know like for me it might have been you know like uh forgotten forgotten absence of like mid-19th century you know but like now who the fuck cares about that dude (laughs) who fucking cares who cares i can't even believe people would even go to that 
like but but and and so we afforded ourselves this like this luxury of like kind of like creating this art form that you know has become the co- the global cocktail uh community over over the last like 15 20 years and it's beautiful and it's awesome and i do really still love all those things and i and i and i you know i look forward to hopefully com- coming back to something like that again in the future but i don't know if it's going to be the same by that time because we're all kind of like been rocked to our core and we have to confront like what are our real values like what's really important to me about my bar is it is it my fancy $18 cocktail that has all kinds of bizarre and like un, like weird crazy spirits that people have never heard of or is it just that like I'm creating an aw- a space for somebody to enjoy themselves amongst friends you know, is it more important for me to be that cocktail guy? Or is it more important for me just to actually just have my business and create a good space for people to go to? Well, well for, for people I, to go to, sorry, Greg, for people to go to and also for people to come to and work. Like I, I, I'm yeah. making these changes not because I'm uh, excited to have people sit outside and drink margaritas. I'm making these changes because I still want to make sure that my team can live in the apartments they live in without having to move or, or that they can, you know, literally put food on the table you know um like i'm not just doing it for the people coming now uh and and i think always i was doing it for my team as well Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. and and i i've always been the preacher of specialized 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 and now suddenly i am all about homogenized let's just be the same as the guy next door because we got to capture those dollars yeah yeah exactly yeah, I don't know the answer, man, but I do know I do know that uh, it's you know never going to be the same, and uh, we're never we're never going to forget this, no matter how this ends. Yeah, absolutely. And um, <clears throat> I mean, what I was going to say earlier is, I think that you know, I think I think there is a space for both. I think there is definitely a a space to say like, you know, we are creating this place that's both an enjoyable place to go to and an enjoyable place to work. And it's because of, you know, the fact that we take the time to get very inventive and creative and that we're doing stuff in this space that nobody else is doing, that we can we can honestly look ourselves in the mirror and say we are the best at this, you know, and and. Um, I think there is a place for that. And I think there's a place for that. Just like I've always said that there's also a place for, you know, the $5 shot in a beer bar. I love them both equally in totally different ways. Um, one thing I'm kind of curious about when we come out of this is, is, is if, you know, one of the conversations we're having is how do we put the industry back together better than it was? And one component of that is charging what stuff actually costs, like getting rid of all the kind of like artificial price cuts that are built into the fact that you can sell, you know, an oyster for a dollar at happy hour or that you can sell maybe not in New York City, but you can sell like an eight dollar hamburger. And I get to me, it's more of a question of like, will people charge what cocktails are actually worth? Like, will people be willing to charge what Mezcal is actually worth, which is about three times what we actually pay for it? I don't know. That's a bit, that's the biggest question mark for me, I think. Yeah, I've gone through, I've definitely gone through some of those things as a, as a bar, as a business owner, thinking about putting together my reopening strategy. Um, Although of course I still don't know when I'm ever going to get to reopen my bar at this point. Uh, but I still have put together, you know, a, a plan for, you know, how we're going to try to get it back up on its feet. And yeah, of course, you got to look at the cost of things and all that sort of stuff. And um, it's pretty interesting. <laughs> I, I, I'm not sure if, I mean, everybody's going to do the same thing or not. Um, I mean, I just recently went to a bar, I won't say the name of it. Uh, and I got one of these, you know, uh, frozen fruity cocktails and uh, I was $20 for that. And I got uh, two of them, like one for me and one for a friend. And then I, you know, tipped, you know, 15 bucks. And so, you know, I was like almost in the whole 60 bucks, $60 for two drinks. And, you know, normally I might like, I might ask if that was actually what people would are charging or if that was a mistake or something. Cause that's like an insane amount of money to pay for a frozen drink. Um, but uh you know, I, I realized that they needed to charge that for their bar. They needed to. That's that's how they're trying to pay their bills. And so, you know, I'm 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 totally in support of that. So I think some people are going to do the. Some people will do that. I think other people will do the opposite. There's also there's like a a Mexican restaurant up the street from where I live, and they've got they've got a seven dollar frozen margarita on their menu. 
So, you know, I think everybody's, everyone's just trying to figure out how they can get a piece of the pie or how they, or rather how they're going to strategize how to make it work. You know, do I rather, do I want to sell four $7 margaritas or do I want to sell three $20 margaritas? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And how do we balance that out with cost of goods and margins, et cetera? Man, yeah. this has been a really eye-opening uh, conversation, Maxwell. I really appreciate you being here on the show. Uh, once again, this was Maxwell Britton from the Django at the Roxy Hotel here in New York City. Uh, he's uh, one of the uh, on the steering committee of Thirst, which again is thirstgroup.org. Go there now. It's a 45-second uh, um, uh, form for you to fill out to support, uh, and hopefully we'll help a lot of restaurants get out of the trouble that they're in right now. You can also find Maxwell uh, on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, all at his name, Maxwell Britton with two Ts. Um, so please follow him, support him, and and uh, you know let's let's help each other dig out of this this hole. Um, so thanks again, Maxwell, for being on the show with us. Uh, Sounds really, good, man. Thank you so much. Like really important stuff, and uh, frankly, I, I don't feel like we had enough time. So we'll probably have you back on to to follow up uh, about what's going on. Yeah, I'd love uh, to keep you guys updated. Um, that would be awesome. And uh, thank you again for for giving me a platform and um, and and everybody in the hospitality industry, you know, the chance to to support us and hopefully in turn we'll be supporting them yeah uh well all right guys thanks so much for tuning into this uh, episode of the speakeasy uh look forward to having you sit in with us again uh cheers everybody thanks again cheers cheers dude. so you don't shun the devil with your rock and roll load knows that country music's gonna save your soul the The Speakeasy is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com forward slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fair, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows that you like. Tell your friends. And please, join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.